I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. So welcome back, uh, everyone, to another episode of The Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, I have a fun one today. I have Kristen Daniels. Uh, Kristen, thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. And uh, Kristen is the Head of Customer Success and Corporate Development uh, within Georgian. And we're, we're, I'm sure we'll talk about Georgian. And uh, she leads uh, a team focused on operational and growth acceleration for the portfolio companies. Prior to Georgian, she led corporate development team at OpenText. Uh, and uh, before that, she started as a corporate lawyer, so it's going to be really interesting to understand that transition uh, at Steichman Elliott, a, a, a law firm we use quite a bit. And she was focused on public and private M&A. So, Kristen, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, I'm sure we'll delve into a few of those interesting topics like career transition, etc. But I, I always like starting with uh, kind of the origination story and, and learn a little bit of, of your background you know how you got to where you where you got to so if you wouldn't mind sharing uh, you know what that childhood looked like to become a lawyer and then say screw it i'm doing this yeah absolutely and i think that maybe interesting part for you when we get to it was it there was never a screw it i'm doing this it was sort of this really opportunistic transition so so we can get to that i grew up in a suburb of toronto i grew up in burlington a very um, sort of typical middle-class upbringing. Uh, both of my parents worked. My mom is an educator and my dad worked in banking uh, for 37 and a half years with RBC, only ever one employer. That tells you a lot about my dad and will tell you a lot about me. It also tells you about a different generation. Yeah, oh, absolutely, exactly. Uh, and, um, you know, my mom was a music teacher in the public education system and also worked as an arts consultant and both very, you know, successful in their fields. Uh, and so I work, I grew up with that example of, you know, both parents working outside the home and, and, uh, and, you know, a very busy lifestyle. I have a younger brother, uh, who was involved in a lot of sports and I did dance, uh, and so from, you know, very early on managing lots of different priorities and having to really learn a lot about time management and organization between um, part-time jobs and dance class and school and sort of all, all of that good stuff. And um, I actually really loved being a student. Uh, I love school. Me. <laughs> school. Schooling for me was a means to an end. And people hear that and, you know, I have a, a couple degrees and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I really hated it. It was just to get to where I wanted to get to. But I envy people that really love school. <laughs> yeah, I liked school and academically found it not all that challenging. And I think that also explains some of the other steps along the way. Uh, and I did French immersion. So I had an early exposure to learning another language, which I think also uh, is kind of relevant to how my path unfolded. Uh, and so, you know, pretty typical uh, all the way through high school. And, and as I was finishing high school, I was really trying to think about what I wanted to do next. Like, what did I want to study? And there was nothing um, really obvious to me. Like, there was not this thing that from a young age, I 
I really knew I wanted to be X, Y, or Z. Uh, I was interested in business and I was really interested in what at the time was a buzzword of globalization, which now is ancient history. But this idea that, you know, uh, the world was becoming more and more interconnected by the day. And I love to travel. My, I had the opportunity when I was about 10, my mom and my grandma took me to Europe for three and a half weeks. And so I had this incredible trip that at a time when I was very impressionable to really experience uh, a lot of different cultures at the same time, learn about history and be exposed to a bunch of different languages. And that really stayed with me. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do for school, I decided I really wanted to have an exchange experience. And I really wanted to have the opportunity to learn another language. You know, more than just English and French. More than just English and French. I barely speak English, so uh, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> well, it's definitely a struggle for me on, on some <laughs> days. And so I ended up going to Carleton and, and I wanted to study business. I decided business was really sort of generic enough that it, it kind of interesting enough that that was a good place to start. And then I could decide what I wanted to do after that. Um, and I ended up at Carleton, which really surprises people uh, sometimes because Carleton doesn't have a, a, the strongest reputation for its business school. But the reason I went to Carleton uh, was because they had a special program. And at the time, it was only about 40 students. It's called a Bachelor of International Business. And so you can kind of see how all those pieces line up together. And, and one of the requirements of the program is that you spend your two first two years studying business and intensively studying another language. And then you have to go abroad and study in that language for a year. So which language was that for you? That's another interesting story. So I actually started in Japanese. Wow. I You, you can choose between, at the time, you could choose between French, German, I think Italian or Japanese. And I know it's expand, the program has expanded to other languages. Now, um, so I selected Japanese because in my mind, I had already learned French. And so I didn't want to do another Latin-based language. I thought, I'll try something different. And, and Japanese was very interesting to me. So I went to Carleton. I studied Japanese for a year intensively. Uh, I studied business. It was just like being in high school because there's only 40 people in my program. Uh, so it was very different than most people's first-year university experiences. Uh, and I realized I love Japanese, but I was not ready to go to Japan for a year. And I, my grandmother actually passed away in my first year of university. And it just, my personal circumstance made me really kind of reflect on, did I want to be that far away for that long? And also just kind of learning more about Japanese culture and the role of women in, in the Japanese sort of business place. I decided, I think I'm going to switch to Spanish. So I started in Japanese, loved that, learned a lot. But in my second year, switched into Spanish, which pushed pushed my um, exchange year out by a year. So, so how much how much Japanese do you still know? A little. Yeah, enough to get around in Japan. No, uh, probably not enough to get around. But I could like tell you my name and like tell you there was an emergency and like ask how you're doing and like where the hospital is and stuff like that. But uh, if someone really started engaging with me, I'd be lost like very, very quickly. So yeah, I switched into Spanish and uh, studied that for a couple of years. And then I went abroad and spent a year in Madrid. And that was an absolute turning point in my life, you know, being on my own 
in another country with a group of women at the time. I, I lived in a house with 13 other women that was uh, part of the university. It was a small university just outside of Madrid, a private business school. So again, still kind of felt like high school. It wasn't one of the big public universities. Uh, and the women I lived with were from Mexico and India and Austria and Spain and Canada. And so I just had this amazing kind of cross-cultural experience. Uh, and that was, yeah, a very, very formative experience for me. Uh, I studied in Spanish, so that was a real challenge, but I think a real confidence builder too, you know, going through that experience, being on my own, traveling all over Europe and, you know, building these bonds with these other women, being successful academically in another language, in another country. I'm sure many times felt very overwhelming, but uh, coming out the other side of it was just an extremely rich experience and really solidified the travel bug for me, for sure. And I think just kind of gave me the a little bit of confidence to be more of a risk taker. I'm not a natural risk taker. Before you get into the law school, there was something that you said you mentioned earlier that is stuck in my head. And you mentioned that your father spent 37 years at RBC. And, and your exact quote was that, you know, it explains a lot about me. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I'm not a natural risk taker. Like uh, my, I thought that's what you, what you yeah, meant by it. Yeah, exactly. Like I, and that kind of explains, uh, it, it'll make sense about the law school too. You know, I, I like having a clarity of path clarity of purpose, you know, kind of understanding how the pieces are going to come together and having a, a, a little bit of certainty. You know, it's funny. I, I, I say this all the time, that there's two people in the world. There's people that thrive in uncertainty and people that thrive on uncertainty. You know, my, my wife is a social worker and probably a little, a little bit like you in the, in the sense that she needs to know the past. She needs to know what, you know, what, what it's going to look like. And for me, I'm the exact opposite. Like if I know what to, the tomorrow brings, it's it, it actually makes me anxious because I, I need to know that I have control over my own destiny in some way. And uh, I like the surprise of it all. So it's interesting you use that word because I use that word a lot. Yeah. And the irony is that's not actually how my life has turned out at all. If I had sat down and sketched it out, I mean, it would be completely different in every way, personally and professionally. So whether you know I like it or not, I have had to embrace a lot of uncertainty, and I think that's made me much more effective in uh, you know for sure my personal life and definitely in my professional life is learning to embrace the uncertainty and to take the risks and to be very open-minded about opportunities. I think it's more fun once you get comfortable with it as well. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> definitely, definitely, it is. So when I came back from from Spain, I finished up my degree and and by chance really decided to write the LSAT. I was not one of those people that from kind of conception forward knew they wanted to be a lawyer, uh, but the law was something that always interested me. And so I wrote the LSAT on a whim. It went fine. And so I thought, okay, well, I might as well apply to law schools. And this was, again, part of that risk aversion of like, I was graduating from business school with no clear path. Like, what do you do with a business degree? And for some people, that's exciting because you could do kind of anything. For me, it was sort of terrifying. Like, I don't know what to do with this. So I ended up going to Osgood, And that was another very formative experience from the perspective of, you know, candidly, I hadn't, I had worked hard in school, but had never found it overwhelmingly challenging. And now I'm in an academic environment where everyone is very academically successful. And it felt like these 
it was just way, way more difficult. It was way more challenging. It was, I, I hadn't written papers. I didn't do a poli sci undergrad. I did business cases and learned languages. And so that was a really big learning curve for me going into law school and really being in a very different ac- academic environment with a very different way of learning. You know, the types of exams, like the whole thing was just sort of a fish out of water experience. And, you know, I struggled to adapt in my first year for sure. Came out of that, of that kind of on the other side uh, and very quickly honed in that I wanted to, to focus on corporate law. And the courses I took that I liked the best were the ones that were taught by practitioners. And I had the opportunity to, to participate in the advanced business law workshop, which is actually taught at some of the law firms downtown. And you actually get to work on kind of real client type matters. And that was just sort of ended up being love at first sight. Like I really, really enjoyed it. And so when the time came to apply, I, like, I don't know how much you know about this sort of very bizarre and rigorous process around recruitment. No, for, for very the familiar. It's a, this very strange thing. So Jay, 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 Jay Kellerman is a good friend of mine and he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's actually been on the podcast. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that Jay had been yeah. on. So when it went time to kind of go through that process, um, I really focused on transactional firms. And, you know, that process was difficult because in a way, because you go into it really thinking you're going to have to aggressively sell yourself and you're not really prepared for like the love fest that comes back from the law firms. And that sounds really strange, but it's very disorienting in a way because all of a sudden you're trying to sort through and figure out, okay, I whoa, I thought I was going to have no options. I was basically going to be begging for a job. And now I have to sort through like, what's going to be the right fit for me? Uh, And I think I, you know, everyone in that process says to you, it's about the people. And that seems so ridiculous at the time. But now having been through it and coming at the other side of the law law firm experience, it is 100% about the people. It's always about the people. You know, it's it's funny when I, you know, we'll get into it and you're you're involved in technology, but it it irks me when people say, well, no, no, this isn't a people business, it's a tech business. I'm like, who freaking makes the, the tech? What are you talking about? Like every business is a people business. Yeah, exactly. And um, I just really loved the people I worked with at Steichman Elliott. It was absolutely the right choice for me. And I think, you know, it, it, people have in the past said, and they might be upset with me for saying this, but it's a bit of a sink or swim model. But I needed that because of my clinging to certainty and being risk averse. I needed somebody to kind of give me a little bit of a, a push and say, no, we think you can handle this, go do it and then do it. And they're like, oh yeah, I can absolutely handle this. And and so I think I really grew in that environment a lot. I learned so much from the practitioners there. And I had an incredible mentor, uh, Martin Langlois. I don't know if, you, if you've encountered Martin, um, who we just you know, got along really well. I think he got me, he could see when I needed a push for things and he provided me with lots of opportunities. And so I just had a really incredible time working there and frankly thought I would kind of spend my whole career uh, at Steichen Elliott. I certainly went into uh, into my time there expecting that. Oh, so, so talk about talk about the the, the moments, right? You said, yeah. it's, you said it's natural. I'm, I'm, I'm still curious as to, uh, you know, seeing if it is really natural that, you know, there's a, a natural evolution. Well, it was nature a little bit. I, I was a young parent 
in early in my uh, law firm days, um, you know, as a second, third, fourth year associate um, when I had my kids and had to try to figure out really quickly how to balance. I might even use the word balance. There's no balance, but how to manage priorities between having Bay Street law is not the most conducive uh, lifestyle. That's for sure. Exactly. And it it was sort of coming up to that point in time where it was like, I'm either going to go full court press on partnership or um, I need to explore what else is out there. And like magic from the sky, the uh, open text opportunity came through. And when I started at open text, it was um, as a lawyer, as an M&A lawyer, they were hiring into the position for the first time and they wanted, they're, they're very active on the M&A side uh, and wanted someone who could be just a dedicated member of the legal team sitting with the corp dev group to work on all the transactions. And I thought, okay, a dedicated M&A role in-house in Toronto, there's like two of those yeah, that exist. Few. And so if I don't take this, I'm never going to have this opportunity again. I'm going to have to go and do like commercial law in-house or something else if I want to try an in-house environment. And it was really clear to me that I'm fairly passionate about transactions. Like to me, it's a, a, you know, you talked about the people, it's a study in human behavior. You know, there's so many things around it and the financial, but it really is about psychology and human behavior and how people approach a transaction. And, you know, I had approached it from a, a legal lens for uh, up until that point in my career, but was really excited to kind of take my, uh, what I naively thought was take an M&A practice and move it in-house and get to be part of that team. And I really, in the back of my mind, and this is that risk aversion piece, told myself, doesn't work out, I'll just go back. And of course it worked out and I loved it, um, but it was another super steep learning curve. Like I really thought I was just going to go practice law in-house and, and that was going to be easy. And deals are really different when you own the results, when you are not the external person who hands it over after closing and says, well, good luck to you. You know, we'll see you on the next transaction. That, that's great insight. And it's what's, from my, from my opinion, it's, it's one of the things that separates a really good M&A lawyer from one that, that isn't is, is that understanding, right? And, and being, able, being able to, you know, maybe not relate, but, but understand that there is a different dynamic. Exactly. And I think... I think you intellectually understand it when you're the external advisor, but you don't live and breathe it in the way that you do when you're in-house. And so that was a huge shift for me is not just owning the result, but like, you know, now I'm working hand in hand with accounting and finance to understand what their reporting timelines are and why that matters. And, you know, I was prepared to just split the difference on the number of days. But now I recognize that, no, they have, it has to be 45, for example, or whatever the thing is. But there are real life implications to all those words that you write down uh, in the purchase agreement and, and really kind of starting to live and breathe that. And about two years into that, I had the opportunity to transition to lead the corporate development team. And that's the moment that was saying, I'm not going to practice law anymore. I'm going to move into this business role that I personally feel woefully unqualified for, but I will never get this opportunity somewhere else. Like no one off the street would hire me to lead an inorganic growth strategy for a public company without ever having been anything other than an M&A lawyer on paper. And I was so fortunate to have had my boss, who was a CLO at the time, Gordon Davies, 
and, and really Mark Berenche, the CEO, who believed that I could do it. I mean, frankly, I didn't even know that I could do it. And to give me that opportunity. Uh, and so I faced another steep learning curve and moved into that role and uh, and did that for two years before uh, before I joined Georgian. But, you know, it wasn't an intentional shift. It wasn't me saying, you know, I'd like to explore what else I could do outside of practicing law. I was really happy being an M&A lawyer and, and doing the transactions and being in the heart of the negotiation uh, and it was just circumstance where this opportunity was presented to me. And I thought, if I don't take this, it's never going to come along again. Uh, and so stepping really far outside my comfort zone to do that and, you know, really never looking back after making that transition. I get two questions. First, you know, why did you leave to join Georgian? And for those that don't know who Georgian is, uh, obviously I do, you know, if you don't mind giving a, you know, just a brief intro on, uh, on, on what Georgian does and what you do within Georgian. Yeah, absolutely. So Georgian is a Toronto-based fintech platform that does predominantly growth equity investing. So, so, so I have to stop you for one second because I was so <laughs> curious to this fintech word, Yeah. right? Like to me, you guys are, you know, venture capital, private equity, like the whole fintech idea. I actually was going on your website today. It was the first time I saw it. it the first, the first thing I wrote down, I'm like, Fintech, like th this is very purposeful and you, 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 you use that word. I need to understand why you use that word. So we are a mirror image of the companies in which we invest and our platform is financial. Uh, so I lead the customer success team as an example. And that team is the post sales so post investment customer success and operational acceleration side. Our investment team is essentially our sales team. We have an in-house R&D team that actually builds and deploys software and writes code and, and trains models, does apply to research projects, which is highly differentiated from other investors in the space. And so the FinTech platform is really our way of, of signaling to the market and to the, our customers who are our, our portfolio companies that we're just like you. We've organized ourselves in the same way. We think about our business in a, in a similar fashion. And we all come from a background of having, or most people in, in the company come from a background of having worked within software companies. We're experienced operators, including our founders. And so we bring that lens to everything that we do. Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. Like when I, when I look at your branding and, and, and marketing, it's it's so geared towards the community you're trying to serve and not the investor base, which is very different to a lot of you know other you know asset managers where you go to the website and it's like for the investor base. So yeah, I, I found that quite quite interesting. And, I, and I've known Georgia for a while. I think you guys are the best at what you do in Canada. And uh, you know, uh, uh, but on that note, you know, you hear some people talk about. You know, in Canada, you kind of have to be a generalist in a way, right? Because the market's not big enough. In the U.S., like you'll find VCs that focus on freaking ERPs within a certain segment. Like they are so specialized, and I've always found it interesting, you know, to see how does like how do these Canadian firms compete in that marketplace with with that level of domain, you know, experience. I know your model is different, having that in-house kind of dev team. Is that how you bridge that gap? It is in part. And I also think it's a, a lot about our approach. So the R&D team and our ability to actually accelerate from a technical perspective is hugely differentiated for us. There's no question about that. But it's the way we approach our investments as well. I think being very um, 
I think the term gets overused founder friendly, but you know, we even refer to our portfolio companies as our customers and we believe that to be true. Uh, and so everything we do is oriented towards this aligned collaborative model. And we only invest where we have that vision lock and alignment about how we can support the priorities uh, and vision of the company that we're investing in through our tools and our know-how. If we don't have that vision lock, we simply won't invest. You know, we, we're not there to be, you might have a really interesting story and a great company, but if we don't see a path to us being able to support your value creation efforts and be additive to what you're trying to do in a very collaborative kind of co-creation method, then, then, you know, you can find another investor that has, has money, uh, deep pockets, and I'm sure would be willing to invest, but we're really there to, to create something together. Uh, and to kind of help support our companies in that journey. And we we believe the greatest opportunities are in those places where we have that uh, alignment about what, you know, the, the path and the trajectory of the company will be. So, so touching again on your on your path to where you got to, you know, you, you probably know this, but, and I get asked all the time, how do I get into private equity? How do I get into venture capital? You know, I, I, that's my dream. And it's it's not a question I I can answer very easily because it's 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 difficult. There's not a lot of roles in Canada, you know. It, it, for for, the, for those young people that are are listening to your story and obviously can't follow that same path, you know, <laughs> are there any recommendations you have about how to you know enter that field, especially within Canada? I mean, it's tough, right? Because I didn't intentionally enter the field, as you kind of alluded to. You know, I got a call from a headhunter, and this is a very specific role that they were looking for a VP level corp dev person in Toronto. And there just aren't that many in, in software. And there just aren't that many of those either, right? And so I managed to get onto a short list. And as I explored the opportunity, realized it was another one of these once in a lifetime opportunities I simply could not pass up. But I had no intention at the time of leaving OpenText, certainly. So I actually think the most important thing is to do something you're passionate about in the related fields and be really good at it as like a first step. That's sort of how I ended up here and be really open to the opportunities that that might come up. And I think the other, you know, we have, or Georgian at least, has an ethos of really bringing people up through the organization. And so I think you sometimes you have to be a little bit willing to potentially take make a lateral move or even you know take a, a slight step back if it's something you're trying to break into and really you know kind of passionate about and you haven't had the opportunity to to get in you know right out of school or within a, a couple of years of, of of having experience. And I know. You know, we have a great network of other investors uh, in the community that we know, and and there's a definite pattern of you know really skilled, really smart uh, people who have some experience that they can bring to bear and are really open to learning kind of as they go along. And and I think coming in in wherever they can manage, you know, in wherever you can get in, I think is is the point I'm trying to make. Like just being open to any of the opportunities that might present themselves, it would be a good fit for your skill set. And then figuring out how to work your way, you know, kind of up and through the organization. Because uh, it it is kind of rare, you know, and it is tough to break into. And, you know, even friends I had from my law days who have ended up uh, in private equity, you know, it took quite a bit of time for them to figure out that path too. And, you know, maybe they were looking to have a, a you know, a, a senior role and had to start at something 
um, a little bit more junior just to be able to work their way up into the organization. You've mentioned community a couple of times, and it's kind of a loaded question, a little bit cliche, but the reality is it's, 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 I'm a huge believer in the value of one's network, community, whatever you want to call it. How, how do you define community and like, how do you build a good one? Yeah, I mean, I think of it, so we have a community at Georgia in our growth network that is specifically for our portfolio. And that is a hugely powerful differentiator for us as well. We have this whole peer-to-peer collaborative uh, network. I think it's a lot about realizing that every person you interact with across your whole journey is potentially important and relevant as you kind of continue on. So that, you know, just last week, I was reintroduced to a banker I had worked with on mining work while I was at Steichman Elliott, uh, you know, and, and your paths do cross. And so I think really being open to um, meeting lots of different people, staying in touch with them and investing in that kind of network because it will become valuable to you over time. I think about the people I went to law school with or the people I went to business school with. A lot of them have ended up in places that are really interesting and maybe not you know, directly relevant to what I'm doing today, but the fact that I could still pick up the phone and, and call them and have a conversation about something that might be in their area of expertise that I didn't anticipate, you know, neither of us knew where we would end up. I never thought I'd be in, in you know, growth equity or, or venture capital, but just keeping tabs on each other and, and kind of staying connected and using, t- you know, using, I know people sometimes uh, think it's a bit ridiculous, like LinkedIn and stuff, but just stay connected with those people, find a way to keep those avenues open because you just never know. And I've, you know, seen it play out a lot of times now. You just never know where someone's going to reappear kind of in your in your landscape and in your ecosystem. And I actually spend a lot of time in my role at Georgia and helping to build and foster the ecosystem on behalf of our portfolio companies with Firepower, for example, uh, with other advisors, investment banks, with accounting firms, with PE firms, uh, because all of those relationships are really relevant uh, both to us on an ongoing basis and hopefully mutually beneficial, but also for our portfolio companies. You know, part of the value add that we can bring to them is when they are ready to exit, when they're re- fundraising, when they're and um, looking to do strategic partnerships. That we have built relationships across the ecosystem where we can make those introductions for them, or at least we know the right person uh, to call to help facilitate. And so that has been a big focus of mine in particular uh, in the last two years since I've been at Georgian as well is, okay, you know, who do I already know and and where can we invest time and energy into building deeper relationships? Because there's a lot of mutual uh, benefit uh, to doing that. So so Kristen, before I let you go, one last question. You know, I I, I came from the venture capital world many, many eons ago. You know, the, the, the peripheral conversations I have with those in your community, you know, growth equity, venture capital, the valuations are ridiculous. I think they've calmed down a little bit, but like I was hearing, you know, 10 times next 12 months, you know, revenue. And I'm like, how can you generate returns with those kinds of valuations going in? What's your view? Because like, I'm clearly wrong because it's happening and, and they're making, you know, people are making money. But what, what am I missing? You know, what's your view on the future of valuations? Yeah, would love to love to know that. I don't think you're missing anything. I mean, it does boggle the mind a little bit. And I think the challenge of the period we're in in this particular moment 
um, is the market had started to cool a little bit, uh, particularly for technology companies in advance of the latest geopolitical challenges that are that are you know really having impact on the market. So there's a lot happening in this very moment that is certainly causing some contraction for for everybody, but in particular, you know, technology companies, we started to see that softening. So I don't actually know how long that will last, um, but we were in a situation before this, during COVID in particular, in particular for technology companies where all boats are rising with the tide. And there was a lot of tailwinds for a lot of different types of software in particular. Uh, look at, you know, uh, Shopify and any kind of e-commerce. And those were really, and I hate to use this term because it's so overplayed now, but unprecedented. It, it really was, you know. And so I think what we saw happening at the back end in, in sort of Q4 and in January of, of this year was a little bit of right-sizing in some of those valuation expectations as we were transitioning out of some of the COVID tail, true COVID tailwinds that had been experienced over the last couple of years. And whether that's closer to what the long-term reality will be, or whether there's even more transition to happen, I think is an open question. But we've seen it play out in the public markets. We're slowly watching that seep into the private markets. Although our experience at Georgian so far has certainly still been that very strong companies are still trading at very high multiples. And so I think it's a bit of a, a wheat separating from the shaft right now that the companies that had artificially inflated valuation, either expectations or um, raised rounds at really, really high multiples that were good companies, but not exceptional companies are probably going to uh, struggle a little bit in terms of maybe raising a, a flat round, even potentially a down round in the near term if they go back to market, just the way that multiples have compressed. But really strong companies, I think, are going to continue to trade at high multiples, in part because there is so much opportunity still. And there is so much dry powder out there. There's a lot of private capital still looking for a home, which will continue to apply that competitive pressure. And so I think what we're just seeing is more of a segmentation, less of all boats rise with the tide and, and now more that really, really strong companies are going to continue to, to command very high multiples and very high valuations. And you're sort of your average uh, company with sort of decent metrics, but not exceptional. They're going to, they're the ones who are probably going to feel this pain, uh, you know, a little bit more. And, and like I said, we haven't seen that fully translate yet into the private markets, either on the MA side or on the investment side. But I do feel that that's just a matter of time. And how long it will stay that way is another great question. <laughs> if, if we knew, we, we wouldn't be working, right? Exactly. I, I always say that if I, if my crystal ball was working, I'd be rich. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, Kristen, thank, thank you so much. I really uh, appreciate you taking the time. I really enjoyed our conversation. For, for those, I, I know there's entrepreneurs listening to this and a lot of them are, are looking for the right partner. What's the best way that they can you know, keep track of what you're up to and uh, maybe get hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. So any, you know, all of our contact information for whoever you want to reach out, Georgian is on the website. You can uh, reach me through our website or uh, LinkedIn. And, you know, we're always happy to, to take a conversation and I'm happy to take a first you know, call or a first email and then direct uh, somebody accordingly through uh, the Georgian kind of network. And it's just Kristen at Georgian.io. Awesome. Again, thank you very much. Until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, 
where you can expect the unexpected.